Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 9. Um, back to our Colonial Trades series. Uh, uh, last one was a silversmith. We're going to pick up one of the one, uh, one of the busiest ones, the builder. So uh, let's get let's get started. So the outside appearance of a 17th century house was the accidental result of its interior arrangement, plus the methods used in building it. Doors and windows, when in there where they would have been most useful, with little regard for how they would look to passers-by, kind of opposite of what we're thinking today. In the 18th century, educated men in England and America became obsessed with the Latin classics and began to build their own houses in a style they thought as of Roman. But the designs they followed were actually invented by the Italian named Palladio in the mid-1500s. Among other rigid rules, Palladio insisted that a front door would be in the middle of the facade and that any feature on one side of it should be duplicated exactly on the other side. Large, 18th century colonial houses followed this dictum to the letter, arranging the rooms inside to conform to the exterior pattern. This usually meant a center hall and two incidental or identical rooms on each side of it. One man, finding it inconvenient so to plan his rooms, ended a partition against the middle of a window. But his house still faced the street in absolute perfect symmetry. And George Washington, when he built his second addition to Mount Vernon, put in four completely false windows to come near to balance as the floor plan of his old farmhouse would let him do. Washington acted as his own architect and even builder, though it's likely he had some design assistance from John Arris, a professional architect who would visit, he had visited in England and who may have studied the subject there. So, half a dozen Englishmen practiced architecture in the colonies in the early to mid-18th century. But Arras seems to have been the most and the only native professional before the Revolution. However, this reckons without the gentlemen-slash-architects who followed the trade as a graceful accomplishment. Such remarkable amateurs as Peter Harrison, a Rhode Island merchant who produced a dozen or so fine churches and public buildings in New England. Andrew Hamilton, the Philadelphia lawyer, who not only defended the freedom of Peter Zenger's press, but also designed Independence Hall. And above all, Thomas Jefferson, accomplished in so many fields, who repeatedly proved his architectural prowess. Now, Charles Bullfinch began as such a wealthy amateur, but circumstances forced him into professional practice. He graduated from Harvard in 1781, and in 1785 made the grand tour of Europe. He used his trip to advance a boyhood interest in architecture. Excavations of Greek and Roman ruins had by then discredited Palladio's authority, and Bullfrench brought home the resulting new and more delicate interpretation of the classic, 
developed in England by the brothers Adam. The federal style evolved in, in this country from the work of Bullfinch, Jefferson, and the Englishman Benjamin Latrobe. The architects concerned themselves with mansions and other large projects. When a simple citizen needed a house, he called in a master builder and agreed with him on size and probable cost, and perhaps some discussion of materials and appearance. The builder showed his clients no drawings. He simply went ahead with construction, using Langley's treasure to guide him on the details. And a very good guide he had. Its full title was The City and Country's Builder and Workman's Treasury of Designs. Meanwhile, Batty Langley wrote it, wrote it, and he published it in London in 1740. Its engravings showed hundreds of doorways, windows, frames, and mantles, and also entire buildings. An experienced man could pick out what he needed and reproduce it with whatever changes his customer, customer's taste or his own suggested. So this was all left up to master builders, and there was very little... Um, used for these kind of architects in, in that period. So, um, and maybe we need to go back to some of that today um, because uh, as we've spoken before here on the Historic Preservationist, um, there's a big problem with being, bringing, um, quote, historic architects or architects on restoration and preservation projects because they, they're, just, they're just biting part of the restoration pie. Restoration money is so difficult to come by. Grants are so difficult to come by. And you have these people on a, there's a local mundane, uh, they call it a museum. It's probably a, probably a 10 by 20 foot little building and $150,000 job just to bring a, a restoration architect to show how to restore the building. That's crazy. We have too many, we don't have too many, but we have enough good carpenters that they can come in and they know what they need to do and they know what was there. We don't need to give away funds to uh, an already depleted uh, mindset of historic preservation. So, so uh, this is the way things worked back then, and, and I hope we can go back to that as soon as possible. But So Langley, Langley's wasn't the only handbook, though. So, so all the carpenters had a book to look at and, and pretty well accepted, but there was a couple out there, uh, you know, for the restoration or even for new construction. Didn't need to have architectural plans drawn. So... And, you know, as far as engineering goes, I mean, believe me, I, I think a lot of the uh, early builders guessed, you know, as far as load and force and vectors and things like that go. And, you know, where do we put some posts in the basement and the walls and the, the whole load of the house? But at, by and large, it worked. Um, but, one of, you know, one of the bigger problems that we see in these historic homes, going back to the 18th century, is they use green timber. And green timber needs to be used in your timber framing. But when you're putting excessive weight on it, um, it's going to hold up for a bit and then start to sag. And when it eventually dries out, it dries with the sag. So then a lot of times, by shimming and other means, we have to compensate going in to get flooring level and things like that. So... Um, just something to think about, but you know, in retrospect, we would have told them to put more posts in the basement or put a wall here or a small wall there to aid. And you know, when these timbers dry out, they dry with like four to five times the strength of that green timber. So, and it's it's a real possibility you could put up some temporary posts in the basement and then pull them out. Once these things have set, 
they're going to be in good standing and straight. So, but too many times I find out over large spans of maybe 20, 20 feet or more, they could, they could have used a bit more posts, but so, uh, um, but again, I was saying that, you know, Langley's book wasn't the only handbook. It was merely the simplest and most practical one for the general run of houses. Um, even the most elevated of the amateurs and professionals uh, at that time used James Gibbs' Book of Architecture, Isaac Ware's A Complete Book of Architecture, or one of a dozen others. Um, British Architect is another that comes to mind by Abraham Swan that was actually printed in, uh, and reprinted in Philadelphia in 1775. It was a practical builder's guide, like the treasury. So copies of these books still do exist. They can be found. So a person who is familiar with them can tell which books serve for a given building or can even note how often the native builders improved on the plates. So as in other trades, the master builder had to have served an, have served an apprenticeship and have worked a long time as a journeyman carpenter and a joiner. The most gifted masters were wood carvers also. William Buckland trained in England, and he was uh, brought to Virginia to be an engineer's servant by George Mason, specifically to act as a carpenter and a joiner for the building of Gunniston Hall. He went further than that and ornamented the interior of the house with some of the more elaborate carvings to be seen in the colonies. In fact, he may have overdone it just a bit. Later, he set up in business for himself at Annapolis as an architect as well as a carver and even an undertaker contractor, that is. While Samuel McIntyre learned the joiners and the woodcarver's trades from his father in Salem, Massachusetts, almost at once he showed outstanding skill at carving and a natural taste in architecture. And... Uh, Anybody who's up in that area in Salem, um, you need to go to the Peabody Essex Museum. It's much more on the federal-type furniture and, and, and decorative arts of the federal period, but um, many, uh, many of McIntyre's pieces are there, and they're, I would not say they're proportionally totally there, or it's t totally not my cup of tea, because everyone knows uh, I prefer the Georgian form of architecture, a lot of flowing, symmetrical lines with... Um, uh, well proportioned with carving. I mean, American casework and furniture for me is uh, maybe has a dearth of carving. I could use a little more ornamentation at times, but the England English had it right on. So McIntyre's carving is is par none. So I must we must say that. So so uh, visit the Peabody Attics West Peabody Essex Museum when in Salem. But <clears throat> though he used the treasury that is McIntyre. Samuel McIntyre, for his early work, he gasped at once the new refinements of Bullfinch, Bullfinch brought from Europe and put them into the handsome buildings he created for his hometown. Their, their chief glory, however, is restrained carving with which he ornamented them both inside and out. McIntyre also did some wood sculpture, but in that field he never equaled either the Philadelphian William Rush, or the brothers John and Simone Skillen, who carved figureheads for Boston ships. America boasted no art schools, and all these men served apprenticeships like any other artisans.
though many, perhaps most, 18th century houses both north and south had wooden walls and quite a few in Pennsylvania were built of stone. A number of them were brick and certainly its warmer color, contrasting with the white frames of windows and doors, is quite pleasant to look at. Country builders commonly made their own bricks right on the job, hauling clay in from the nearest bank. Town brickyards used much of the same methods as they did. Laborers could mix the clay in, with water in a pug mill, knocked together for the occasion. Its only moving part was a wooden post rotated by a mule or an ox towing one end of the horizontal pole. A strongly built box surrounded the lower half of the post and clay was shoveled into its open upper top. Stout pegs driven into the post were the stirrers and the stirred the clay into a puff and stiff paste and their spiral arrangement worked it downward into a slot in the bottom from which the molder took what was needed. So it starts at the top, water's added to make the right consistency, and it works its way out and it comes out of an opening in, in the bottom. And what we call the brick maker here is, is a molder, molder, M-A-U-L-D-E-R. But any carpenter can make a brick mold. It was no more than a grid of two inch boards partitioning six or eight inch brick size spaced. It had neither a bottom or a top. The molder, standing hip deep in a pit, wet the mold and dipped it in the sand, and then the bricks would fall out later when they were shaped. Then he used his hands to press clay solidly into every space. The board the mold stood on kept the bottoms of the bricks flat, and it was scraped off, and another board flattened their tops. A helper dumped the new bricks onto an improvised rack to dry for a few weeks. Air dry, that is. And then the kiln was built with the green bricks themselves stacked in spaces between them to conduct heat in such a way as to leave parallel open-ended tunnels through the pile. Only the outside walls were laid close. Wood fires in the tunnels kept going day and night for 10 days, baked the clay extremely hard. Bricklaying was a respected trade back in that day, complete with apprentices, journeymen, and masters. They laid their bricks in a mortar of sand and lime and prided themselves on the narrow evenness of their struck or concave joints they made. Not infrequently, they gauged bricks, meaning they shaped them, that is, by rubbing them against a four-metal blade so that they produced moldings when they were laid side by side. They also laid brick lintels over doors and windows that still support the walls above them with no help from metal bars. They built fireplaces designed for heating rooms that were so shallow that half the depth of the andirons stood out on the hearth, and yet they didn't smoke at all. So great, great chimney designers. And the interior of even quite simple houses provided plenty of work for a joiner. And since he had to shape by hand every piece and every molding he put in, he took a long time to finish it. Stairs had become staircases and put together almost like fine furniture. Sometimes, <clears throat> in mansions, they ascended from the middle of, a, of the large hall to a full-width landing, where they divided and then returned, reaching the second floor as two sets of steps along the walls. Sometimes they made the whole ascent in the great sweeping curve, 
construction problem calculated to give a craftsman nightmares. The joiner had to plow out a rabbit in the underside of each tread of any staircase to fit in the upper edge of the riser into it. No longer did a string piece hide the ends of the steps. He had to finish and expand each step and often to ornament, ornament it with a carving. He had to mortise two or three balusters into each tread and to make the handrail that capped them. This meant shaping the rail's top, bottom, and sides with a special plane for each face, a short plane that could be pushed around the curves of the upturning ramps at the landings and around the spiral that often ended the rail at the bottom. Some rooms had their walls covered entirely with frame wood panels, accented by projecting baseboards, chair rail, and cornices. In others, only the fireplace wall was paneled all the way up. The panels on the other three walls went <clears throat> other three walls were ended up being plastered and or even could be painted, papered, or covered with fabric. Doors had elaborate frames, and so did windows, which often had panels inside the shutters made to fold them away in the sides of the deep uh, window frames. Every room, except for a center hall, had at least one fireplace, and the very very large rooms had two. The fireplace was the central feature, and the joiner had to surround it with a mantle that would set it off just well. He turned to his handbook for inspiration, but once in a while he scratched a rough drawing on a plank to try and do some changes uh, to make something a bit different. A few of these sketches on the backs of boards of the fire surrounds built into the structure turn up when an old house is raised. The 17th century left its woodwork untouched for time to color. The time made a beautiful job of it, though. Most 18th century paneling was painted, not with pastel tints, but with good strong blues, greens, yellows, browns, and reds. We shy away from anything painted to imitate something else, but our ancestors did not. They often painted woodwork to look like marble, or they stenciled borders around the edges of floors, presumably to imitate that of carpets. So we're going to finish here, and, and that uh, just kind of wets our whistle about the, quote, builder. And interesting, the most interesting thing about it was, again, you know, you had competent builders and you didn't need architects. And um, I think you need architects today for new buildings, but in the restoration, I, w I would, you know, and I've been pushing in the mid-Atlantic states that we can start up a, an organization that can vet carpenters, uh, maybe on a state-by-state -state basis, region-by-region -region basis, that they go through a program and they understand how to incorporate um, or how to do the restoration. Or We just want to know that their skills are up to par. So when they're, when they're doing exacting restoration, they're not, uh, if they have to add any electricity or plumbing, that minimum in, uh, destruction of the dwelling is going to occur. So uh, something I've been trying to push, but of course you get a lot of resistance because nobody wants to have to go back and relearn. And, and people, uh, a lot of these guys, want to, a lot of these carpenters, uh, they call themselves carpenters, but I mean they're using you know air guns and non-traditional stuff, non-traditional building fabric, and they're just out to make a quick buck. And I mean, as we've talked again on the uh, historic preservationists, so many of these houses are so cheaply cheaply made, and there's there's going to be a time, you know, in some of these, well, I'm seeing housing developments that were actually built in the mid '80s to late '90s or uh, 
mid-80s to the early 90s, that these houses are totally falling apart. Nails popping, screws popping, delamination of the, 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 the bloody cheap particle board they're made out of. And they're having $450,000 houses that have to be almost gutted now and uh, totally rebuilt with, with new fabric. So, and some of them run too tight. I mean, you need airflow through a house. You just, and you know, even today when we're concerned with things like radon, uh, but the houses are way, way too tight. And there's too much use of uh, particle board and plywoods. And, and just think of all these great glues everyone's breathing out there. So uh, it's pretty horrific stuff when you think about it. And uh, even these bloody, they're just absolute rubbish. These mattresses they sell um, full of chemicals that are you're gassing off. And I mean, how bad can it get? You can lay on this foam piece of foam that they call a mattress today and you can inhale these toxic chemicals for years your face right buried in it and you're, you're paying sometimes five six seven hundred dollars for a mattress it should be illegal how crazy is that between the glues and the formaldehydes gassing from building materials of houses and the mattresses today pretty bad stuff and uh, not to mention uh, up here in the northeast around new jersey and and Delaware, some really bad drinking waters, but we've had some really bad polluters that have been exposed in this area. So, uh, and uh, you know, the, our EPA is maybe they're overtaxed, but I mean, uh, there's several towns here that there's there's drinking water in this uh, tri-state area, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware that you just should not drink. You should make coffee. Possibly, some homeowners in certain areas are told you shouldn't even shower in this water. So. Uh, but there's where your government doesn't come in and take care and take charge. So anyway, um, just getting those things off the chest. Uh, the historic preservationist, Greg Perry. Don't forget to look us up on Instagram. We have a few channels there. The Shivers House Museum, Perry's Clock Conservation, and the Historic Preservationist, which, all one word, small letters, leads you to IGTV. And don't forget our YouTube channel full of instructive videos and um, videos that we, uh, we, st we, we put blame at people are doing bad things for architecture and other decorative arts. And uh, so look us up there. We have videos on uh, horology and in the field and uh, furniture restoration in, in my, my studio, my conservation studio, and uh, architectural videos. I know people, people doing great work and great architecture and a lot of videos about me doing... Uh, doing brick and stonework and, and masonry, building windows and things like that. So please look us up and don't forget to subscribe. It helps us all. Uh, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing off. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening.